This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I read a study, well, a report of a study, not long ago, I mean, really, really recently, that talked about how if I sit and binge watch my favorite TV show, or if I sit for a long time on a couch doing nothing, this can be really deadly for my health. Let me read you something from a story from this report. Sitting through an entire season of whatever in one fell swoop puts you at an increased risk of dying from inflammatory related diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, diabetes, and kidney disease. A new study says, according to researchers at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia, every extra hour per day spent watching television puts you at a 12% increased risk of death relating to inflammation. So we've thought about this for a long time now, you know, sitting is not really good for you. So this has led to, even in my office, people who want standing desks. Let's stand up. Standing up is going to be better for you. It's going to create your better circulation. You're going to be on your feet. It's good for your core, all that kind of stuff. Well, a new study, a newer study. This one coming out of Toronto says, wait, standing for a long time puts you at risk of health problems. Dr. Peter Smith is a senior scientist at the Institute for Work and Health. He is the lead author of this study. Um, he can, I'm sure, help us wade through the confusion here. Uh, Dr. Smith, thanks for coming on tonight. No problem, Scott. Thanks for having me. So uh, walk me through this. If I sit down for too long, I'm a mess. My my health is bad. If I stand for too long, I'm a mess. What What is my, I mean, I suppose I can just sit and stand and sit and stand. Is that, is, is that? Levitate. The, you could levitate. Levitate. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it. That's a good one. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe, you know, lie on your back. But I mean, so I do understand there's, you know, there's a bit of confusion about. So there is a message which has been, so it's not so much that we shouldn't sit, it's that we should be active. Um, and so it is true that people who tend to sit a lot, especially in the time they spend outside of work, um, that's a pretty good driver of, of who's going to get, um, you know, diseases and who's going to die prematurely of, um, in the future. However, there's another group of workers who don't get a lot of activity but they're, instead of being able to, having to sit all day, they've actually got to stand all day. So they've got to stand for like four, five, six hours at a time. Like we're talking about people like bank tellers, sales and service workers, um, people in sort of food and beverage industries and on certain sort of manufacturing lines. They've got to stand for prolonged periods of time. And if you've ever tried to stand for four or five hours, you'd know it takes a bit of a toll on your body. And Cardiovascularly, because we looked at heart disease in our study, what happens is your blood tends to pull in your legs. It increases the venous pressure, which is you know the pressure in your veins, because you've got to get that blood back up to your heart. And there's increases in oxidative stress just because it's it's a painful thing to do. And over time, these things can lead to heart disease. So, you know, the message that we should be changing our body position is a good one. But we shouldn't just be focusing on people who sit a lot. We should actually also help people who stand a lot to occasionally change their body position and have a sleep. Because it has been kind of a new thing. And again, these sort of standing desks we've seen, I've even seen commercials on TV now for your standing desk because, you know, everyone is thinking, well, if sitting is really bad for me, then the opposite of sitting must be really good for me. Uh, Not necessarily. I mean, one one plus one does not necessarily equal two. Well, it depends. Well, I think the problem is that... um, the opposite of sitting is not standing. The opposite of sitting is to be active. Okay. So, Great um, point, okay. And so, you know, so if you've got a sit-stand desk, um, standing a little bit more, is it going to pose a health risk? No, it's not going to pose any health risk. Is it going to give you any health benefit? Well, the available evidence suggests that the energy you expend when you're standing compared to when you're sitting is not that much more. Um, and so you're not really going to get a health benefit from just standing a bit more throughout the day. In fact, the amount of time you'd actually have to stand throughout the day, you'd be standing, you know, a couple of times uh, every 30 minutes, which, you know, is, is, it's not really feasible for a lot of people in their jobs to, to have to, you know, be basically looking like a yo-yo throughout the day. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, the message that the sitting is, is prolonged sitting is not good for you. And as you said, there's some good studies that show that, the, you know, the time is spent sitting down watching TV. That's true. If those people were more active instead of sitting down, that'd be good. But we're also missing an important group of people who don't also don't get to be active. But 
rather than having to sit, they've got to stand. And over time, that takes a, a worse toll on your cardiovascular than, than sitting down does. So has this new idea, this sort of, um, it's kind of a, a good thing to be standing all the time, is this basically the, the result of uh, ergonomics folks who are looking to keep their jobs and of people who build furniture and need to come up with something new? Is this, here, let's throw this out there and let's make you believe it's good? Or, or do you think that the people who have been suggesting this truly in our heart of hearts really thought this was the better thing and we're just now discovering that it maybe is no better? Well, I mean, I do think the ability or the flexibility to be able to change your body position when you're, when you're in discomfort is, is a good thing. And there are people who find that if they sit down, things like their back starts to hurt and, and um, you know, their neck starts to hurt. And, and for those people, getting up and standing and changing their body position is good. Uh, you talk to anyone who stands all day, uh, I'll tell you that if they get the opportunity to sit, it feels pretty good too. So I think, you know, <laughs> the idea that you should be changing your body position throughout the day, I think is good. Um, you know, the sit-stand desk market has, has sort of exploded and, and because there's a lot more people who have to spend their whole day sitting than there are who spend their whole day standing. Um, and I think, you know, the, the message that um, when, when those guidelines originally came up about having to... to um, break up your sitting all day. Actually, one of the guidelines which everyone overlooked was they also said you shouldn't stand for too long either. Mm. Um, so I do think you know, the ability to be able to change your body position when you're feeling discomfort um, is a good thing for all workers. Um, whether standing a little bit more provides you, so probably relieves some pain. It probably, you know, for some people, they say it helps them concentrate. Does it reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease in the long term? The evidence is pretty shaky on that. Um, if it's got any impact, it's it's a pretty small impact and you've probably got to stand a lot more than most people do when they've got their sit-stand desk going on at work. Is this, I mean, again, you're, you're a scientist, you're a researcher. I, I got to believe that when you're doing the job you're doing and you're doing the work you're doing, that maybe one of the most frustrating things is when you put out a study that has just come out after another study and the people reading these then look at both and go, what are you guys talking about? I can't, you tell me I can't sit. You tell me I can't stand. You tell me I should drink more wine. You tell me I shouldn't drink wine. You tell me coffee's good for me. And now you say coffee's not good for me. It, it must become a little frustrating if you're doing this research that people get probably to the point where they say, yeah, you know what? I, I'm not even paying attention because they, they don't know what they're talking about. Well, I, look, I do, I do think there are, I mean, I, I, it's, is it frustrating for me? I mean, it's, it sort of pays my bills, but um, <laughs> uh, it, um, it, it's probably frustrating more for the people who are reading it and wondering what they should do. I mean, I know even myself, I'm not a, I'm not a nutritionist, but the amount of stuff I read about what I should be eating, yes. should be eating I find is impossible to, to keep up with. Now, in this particular instance, I think it's a, it's a little bit different. So, um, you know, we're not saying that the message not to sit down or to be more active is, is not the right message. We agree completely with that message. Um, we agree that you know, people should have some sort of mixture of sitting and standing. We agree with most of the research that standing a little bit more doesn't offer a cardiovascular benefit. I think what we're trying to draw attention to is this, this group of workers, and it's not a small group. It's, you know, we're probably talking it's about you know, somewhere between 10 and 12% of the labour market who have to stand for prolonged periods of time. And I think the importance of this is that there's not a lot of those jobs, if you think about them, bank tellers, you know, sales and service workers, they don't have to sit. They don't have to stand, sorry, in order to do their job properly. Um, they could probably do it just as well if they had a stool beside them and they sat down some of the time and they stood up some of the time. I mean, the reason most of these people have to stand is because their employers make them stand because the public perceives that if they're not standing, that they're not attentive and they're not polite. Um, so it's sort of it's unnecessary standing in a lot of ways. And if we had a, more of a sense of, of how much of a risk, and that's what we've tried to add to this, body of evidence to show that not only does it, you know, standing, does it cause, you know, leg problems, varicose veins, sometimes for back problems, but it also can increase risk of heart disease, which is, you know, still the number one cause of death in Canada. So, you know, why are we making these people stand for prolonged periods of time when we, we could just give them a stool? Now, Dr. Smith, the, I mean, one of the other points about this, as I was, as I was thinking about this today, um, it is a bit of a stretch for someone to have read some documentation or read a study that said, you know, if you stand, that somehow they would have come to the conclusion that simply standing was going to greatly enhance their their health. I mean, it is a bit of a stretch to believe that this would be the utopia, that if I simply stand up, but some people obviously were buying that, if I simply stand up, I'll be all better. It, it does well, seem like it, it, you're looking for something to to get that probably isn't there to begin with. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you sort of compared the, the energy expenditure, compared how your body felt, like standing doesn't give you that sort of 
um, sort of shortness of breath and, and sort of um, uh, you know uh, sort of sweat and increased heart rate that, that you'd, you'd expect from exercise. And I think you know I do think a lot of the problems is that when the message came out about let's not sit too much, people sort of drew the conclusion well let's stand a bit more. But really, the, the optimal result would be let's move a bit more. So not sitting, not standing, but actually being active and moving our body when we need to move our body, which would probably do something to decrease our risk of cardiovascular disease and also make you feel a bit better because you get the muscles moving, you're sort of stretching the limbs and stuff. So it's it's probably a little bit better for most people if they have the chance to be able to move around throughout the day rather than either sit or, or stand. It is um, it is an interesting story, uh, study to read. Again, it's uh, one of those things you have to look at both. And, and I think if you just look at one or just look at the other, you think the uh, you don't really get what's going on. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this tonight. It's, it's very interesting. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for your interest in the study. It sounds like a great rest of the show. Thank Can you. Yeah. Guess what Paul McCartney's song was? You, you know, I'll put you on hold if you want to tell Ben so you don't... Uh, I'll put you on hold. Give Ben a guess. That's uh, Dr. B- uh, Peter Smith from University of Toronto. Um, you know, the, the great part about this, as I say, is we do, and he, and he acknowledged, we have in our culture, so, first of all, we have so much media, so much social media, so much media that's out there. So we see so many stories of studies. We have so many stories about this or that or the other, and we do get wildly divergent results, it seems. It seems like, anyway, the, what we hear about, and I use the example of wine, red wine probably is the most studied thing on the planet. I mean, it's got to be the most studied thing on the planet. A, because, well, (laughs) my cynical side says, if I'm a scientist, what do I want to study? Hmm, red wine. Okay. But we, how many studies have you heard over the years that say a glass of red wine a day is terrific for you? Drink a glass of red wine a day. Must be red wine, but drink a glass of red wine. It's good for your heart. It's good for this. It's good for that. And then a week later, you hear a study saying a glass of red wine and you're a functioning alcoholic. Don't drink a glass of wine a day. A little bit here or there maybe is okay. We never can figure out. We never seem to be able to keep up with all these different conflicting, it sounds like, studies. So here we go again. We've got a study that says don't sit too much. Sitting is, is not good for you. Sitting for a while or for a, a stretch is not good. But now we've got standing is not good either. Well, as he says, the opposite, of, and I, I, you know, I hadn't really thought of it this way, but it's true. The opposite of sitting is not standing, it's moving. The opposite of standing is not sitting, it's moving. Hmm. I do neither. I mean, as far as the moving from the standing or the sitting position, I sit and I stand. I, I need to do more of either one, apparently. But there you go. You go read the study. It's um, you can find it online. Stories about um, about what about that study, about the details of that study. If you're if you're interested to understand where it's all going and what it's getting at, uh, because as I say. At my other office, at the Spectator, we have people now who have taken to standing through most of the day because, either, well, I don't know, maybe it's more comfortable for them. I've never really asked them. I've just seen their standing desks or because it's supposedly good for you. Well, I guess it's time to get the one. Have you seen the desk on TV? You can raise it to stand, then you can lower it. You can raise it, you can lower it. Maybe that's the one we all have to get with a treadmill attached to it. That would even be better to run or walk while you're doing your work. You might spill your coffee, but at least you're moving. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So I wake up this morning, well, I get to work this morning, and as I do every day, I get a coffee and I settle down, I sit into my chair and open up Rick Zamperin's commentary from 900 CHML. This is my morning routine. And Rick is generally a very upbeat, optimistic, compassionate, good guy. I mean, his stuff, he's usually, he's, he's the glass half full, the very picture of that. And I get it today and my goodness, I don't know if someone peed in Rick's cup last night or what, but Rick Zamperin wrote a thing saying that is asking, is 2017 the worst year in Ticats history? Rick joins me now, sir. Hello. Harsh words. Well, I think I was. Uh, agitated by having to pronounce dehydrochlorothiazide. <laughs> you do that very well. Can you spell it? <laughs> I can spell it because it's written right in front of me. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, you know, all I can think is it's really good. That's not an athlete's last name. 
Because getting well, that on the back of his sweater would be a challenge. It'd be the first ever hyphenated last name, two decks. Yeah, or, or the first ever, uh, or, or the first part is at the top and the last part is on the bottom of the jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know what, uh, let, me, let me read a, uh, a couple lines from this to sort of set this thing up. Uh, back to my original question. Is 2017 the worst year ever for the Cats? I wasn't around when the franchise was founded in 1869, obviously, but I've certainly found, followed the Cats and the CFL for more than 30 years. The Jones suspension, the Johnny Manziel rumors, then the Jones suspension, by the way, that drug suspension from yesterday with that impossible to pronounce word. The Johnny Manziel rumors, the Art Bryles disaster, the coaching changes, the 60 to 1 debacle in Calgary, Will Hill grabbing an official, Desmond Washington spitting in the face of an opponent, and the 2 and 9 last play record. Other contenders for the Ticats' worst year include the 2013 monsoon season in Guelph, the 1-17 bankrupt season of 2003, and the 2-16 record the team had in 1997. For me, all the off-field BS has made this the worst year that I can recall. Uh, You paint a compelling picture, my friend. Well, thanks. And, uh, you know, when you look at the records of these teams, so right now, this Ticats team is 2-9. and nine. Obviously, the season's not done. They can still win more games. They can still be, at least record-wise, better than that 1997 team that struggled out of the gate and, and struggled mightily for the rest of the year and, and finished 2-16. and 16. Uh, They're obviously going to be better than 1-17, having already won their second game uh, uh, just after Labor Day. But when you factor in all the other stuff, I mean, 1-17, this team was bankrupt, and that's about the worst thing that could ever happen in 2003. But there was, off the field, an amazing moment in 2003. And even though it was after the season, uh, it was still that, hey, the Ticats have a new owner in Bob Young, and, and we've you know sung his praises for years and years and years, and rightfully so. He saved this franchise. So 2003, record-wise, a debacle. But off the field, despite the whole year of the bankruptcy, uh, this this franchise had a savior that saved it from uh, you know elimination. That saved it from being wiped off the map. Well, plus that, plus Rick, that year because they were bankrupt and everyone knew it. Yeah, they were awful, but nobody really was holding out great expectations. It was a ride out the season and see if you can find a Bob Young. Exactly. And, and you had players, and I remember this quite well, covering the team, going to practices, being in the locker room at Old Iverwin Stadium. And even though they were, you know, 0-6, 0-10, 0-12, finally got that win <laughs> against Saskatchewan in overtime, I still remember the game-winning field goal, and I still remember Elon Green fumbling and, and a tie cat mistakenly, I think, falling on the football to recover it. Um but those guys went to work, and, and let's face it, it is, it is a job. They, they, were, they were trying to get paid, hoping to get paid, knowing that in some cases their payment might be delayed, and these guys have bills to pay. But they came to the ballpark, they came to practice, they came to the games, uh, wanting to give it their all. And I saw it in their expressions after the game. You know, They were thoroughly disappointed that they had lost and really kind of eyebrows raised thinking, uh, you know, are we going to get paid for this performance? Uh, you know, that was a team, that was one of my most famous or one of my most favorite years because you still had, you know, Hall of Famers like Danny McManus. You had, uh, you know, illustrious, uh, legendary Ticats like Rob Hitchcock, uh, guys who just went and did their job, not knowing whether they were going to get paid or not. I just love the mentality of that of that unit. Yeah, th- I mean, this year, the stuff that has gone on, and I mean, the record is one thing, but as you point out, a lot of the off-the-field distractions, a lot of the stuff just seems, you know, people with the Cats and diehard fans will take issue with what I'm going to say, but it just seems less fun. It seems like it's it's there's been one thing after another that rather than just thinking about football and getting prepared for the next game, it, it seems as though the fun factor has been down a bit because of all these things. Uh, I agree, and I think the I think the sentiment has now passed. But I think even a few weeks ago, it was uh, you know the Art Bryles, and it was you know the Johnny Manziel who's still kind of up in the air. But you you got the, the feeling of you know what's going to happen next? Like what what's around the corner? If we you know pull this curtain back, what are we going to see here? Uh, there was an expectation of you know another shoe is going to drop. It seemed like, you know, every week or every other week, something bad was happening. And, you know, you, you, you pile up all these things and, and some on-field things, too, like the 60-1 to game. You know, the second worst 
uh, loss in the history of the league, or I think it was the third worst loss in the history of the league. Like those things matter. You're changing quarterbacks. You're making coaching changes. Uh, th- there's just been a lot to take in uh, for Ticats fans this season, more than they deserve for sure. Third worst loss in CFL history. First best fifth quarter episode in CFL <laughs> history. Yes, very true. That was. Um... You know, someday when the Hall of Fame comes calling, Rick, I hope you have that one in some sort of disc or something that you can hand and they can just play that on a loop as the best post-game show um, in Ticat history. Uh, and, and, you know, with all the stuff you talked about, imagine if Toronto's field goal kicker, Hiram, Hir- or uh, whatever you say. Hiram Haralahu. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and spell that one. Um, yeah. But if, if he didn't have a crampy leg, in the game against Toronto, and then if Ottawa doesn't miss a couple of field goals, yeah. this team is 0-11 with all this stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Boy. You talk about compounding an issue. I mean, you know, a lot of these off-field issues, whether they take care of themselves or not, uh, you know, sometimes uh, that, that doesn't occur, but sometimes the team can do things to prevent these things from happening. A, they play better on the field. They don't have to make a coaching change. They don't have to go out and, and seek a guy like Art Bryles. They don't have to, uh, you know, see uh, players get suspended or, or uh, either for handling official or taking drugs uh, or, or guys spitting in other faces. I mean, these things, you don't hear these types of things from other CFL teams. When was the last time we heard, uh, you know, someone on the Edmonton Eskimos uh, grabbed an official or spat in someone's face or, uh, you know, was suspended for drug use? And I know that happens from time to time, but it just seems like this year everything is happening to the Tiger Cats. Do you believe that off-field affects on-field and vice versa? I think to an extent. I think it depends on what the off-field is. Certainly, if, you're, if your franchise is bankrupt, that is going to uh, obviously affect what happens on the field. But on Art Bryles' thing, I'm not sure how much that affected what happened on the field. Uh, the coaching changes, certainly. I mean, that, that's, that has an on-field, off-field uh, gray line that is blurred all the time. Um, so it, it kind of depends on what that off-field issue is. But go the other way, though, because if the Ticats, rather than being, what was the record when, it was 0-8 when they did the Art Bryles thing, right? Yes. What if they are 8-0 and 0 instead? They never try, they never feel the panic and the need to yes. go get Art Bryles and to make a bad decision because they're in that. So, I mean, if you're going to say that one thing can affect another, uh, it, it can go the other way, too, I think. Because I don't think you ever, I don't think the Manziel thing is an issue. I don't think the Bryles thing comes up if this is a winning team this year. Yeah, you probably, you know what? You probably don't have uh, Devon Washington spitting in the opponent's face because he's thinking, hey, we're 8 no. Uh, I don't have to, I don't have to resort to this kind of tactic to get under the skin of an opponent or, or, or for retaliation or whatnot. So certainly what happens on the field can affect, you know, the play of your team, of course. And, and that happens from game to game to game. I mean, if you're up, 40 to 10 in the fourth quarter, uh, you're going to act, uh, at least you should act like you're up 40 to 10 in the fourth quarter. So uh, yeah, there, there is definitely a correlation for sure. Let me switch, uh, switch tack with you here ta- because uh, there was a story today, not about football, um, that I thought was really, first of all, you probably saw the highlights. Many people have probably seen it by now or heard about it. A uh, really frightening incident at Yankee Stadium this afternoon. Uh, Todd Frazier, the Yankees' third baseman, no fault of his own. He's just up to bat, and he is trying to hit the ball, and he connects, and he screams a foul ball into the stands Mm -hmm. that drills a young girl. And, boy, it was, put it this way, it was scary enough that many of the players on the field, they were all down on their, you know, taking a knee, and many of them looked like they were about to cry. They looked, like, pained when this happened. And, And a lot of people thought, you know, we may have the first case that I can remember of someone actually dying in the stands. And that's how they looked. And it raises the question, Rick, they have screening in hockey now behind the net because of a fan being hit and killed with a puck. There is screening behind home plate in all these parks. Is it time to stretch that screening to protect people down the baselines? Because that ball, when it comes, it is coming so fast. Even if you have a glove on, it's hard to get your glove in front of it. You know, it's, it's surprising to me that this hasn't happened many other times. Not only baseballs, but we've seen baseball bats at Fenway Park last right? year. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there there's an inherent risk whenever you're going to a live sporting event. You go to a racetrack. You know, a car can explode in front of you or crash into another, and a tire can go flying. And I know they have you know extended fencing and, and they have taken precautions, but we have seen incidents at racetracks 
we've seen things uh, certainly at hockey games. You, you referenced uh, the incidents uh, that, and I think it was a little girl in that case too in Columbus. Uh, yeah, passed away. Yeah, um, you know, extending the fence in a baseball game—that's that, a difficult question because the question then becomes. How much do you extend it by? Do you go past third and first base? Do you have to go all the way to the outfield? How high does this fence have to be? I mean, it's a very delicate question because now you're asking fans who have paid, in some cases, hundreds of dollars, and in some cases, thousands of dollars, depending on what city and what team you cheer for, uh, to now look through you know, additional fencing or more fencing. And maybe they have purchased that ticket because it's away from the whole plate fencing. Uh, you know, Whatever the case is, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. I would think that uh, you know fans obviously have to pay attention to what's happening, and, and I'm not sure of the circumstances regarding you know this section or this girl and, and what she was doing at the time. But you have to keep your eyes open, and I know it's easy to be distracted at any type of venue, whether it's a hockey arena, a basketball uh, arena, football or baseball. Uh, you, you have to keep an eye on the game play, and sometimes it's easily to get distracted. So. I would vote no if I had a vote to to not extend the screening. But uh, hey, I, I could be swayed uh, either way because you know I, I would I would want that safety first kind of mentality in uh, you know if I'm the GM or an owner of a franchise, I want to keep my fans safe. They're paying the salaries of these players. Uh, they're they're the reason why you know these pro athletes are on the field or on the ice or whatever the case is. Yeah, you know I. Because baseball, unlike hockey, let's say, like hockey, you've always had glass around the rink and the the play never extends into the crowd. Right. Baseball, it can. You can reach into the crowd and get a foul ball to, to catch a foul ball. You can, it becomes a trickier thing for sure than just saying, which will be the knee jerk reaction today. Hey, put up fencing all the way down and, and, mm-hmm. and if somebody were to file a multi, multi, multi million dollar lawsuit against the team, fencing probably goes up the next day. Yeah. And the other question you have to ask too is, I mean, each team plays 162 games and throughout the history of baseball, you times that by all the teams that have been involved and how many incidents like this have we had? I mean, the the percentage is minuscule, but still when it does happen, uh, you, you obviously have to think of, you know, how can we make the playing area safer for fans? This may be a crazy question, but one of the knocks against fencing or against the meshing is that it's not always great to look through. Yeah. And you're affecting the, you know, you say people are paying a lot of money. Could it work if you put up plexiglass, put up 10 foot high plexiglass just for those unbelievably screaming line drives like this one. So it'll, you know, if it's on a higher angle, you have a little better chance, but you know, if it's going to be 10 feet or 12 feet high, we'll put up plexiglass and that would be an, and then the vision shouldn't be obscured. Would that work? You know what? I've never, I've never sat in a hockey arena low enough to have to be forced to look through the plexiglass, but I would imagine that and I'm just thinking of, you know, Air Canada Center where guys and, and, and ladies are paying, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to sit in those platinum seats and, and look through the plexiglass. I would assume, and I would presume, that that glass is sparkling clean. Uh, during the course of a game, you're going to get a smudge here and there, obviously. Uh, I would think if, if, if they're going to do the plexiglass scenario in the ballpark, they would have to, I think, remove all of the mesh behind home plate, because then you're going to get fans to say, well, I'm going to go sit there instead of here, and then... Uh, you're not going to have anybody behind the home plate. You're going to have everybody behind the plexiglass because they don't have to look through the mesh. Now, obviously, I'm taking it to an extreme, but I think it could work if the glass was crystal clear and you're not obstructing any of the views. Now, is that possible? Perhaps. Uh, you'll still have to have the stanchions, I would assume, because that's what they have at the NHL, too. Uh, so, the, again, there's not a there's not a 100% uh, you know, unobstructed view uh, through this plexiglass scenario. I can tell you that many, many, many years ago, when Maple Leaf Gardens was still a thing, a friend of mine had front row seats in the Blues. Remember where the Blues were? Behind oh, yeah. the nets, above yeah. the out-of-town scoreboard. Yeah. And the only protection you had was a metal, like, one-inch pipe railing that yeah. was in front of you. And I remember boring... your hands. <laughs> well, and it was a front row seat, and I was there. I didn't go to many games with him, but we went to this one, and Borea Salming took a slap shot. I remember it. This is burned into your brain because you realize what could have happened. Took a slap shot that was deflected <laughs> and it hit the railing in front of me. Wow. And I don't know if it would have hit me or if it would have gone between us or caught him. I just know it was coming at us and you did not have a chance to move. You wow. were just a sitting duck and I'm thinking 
that's exactly what would happen at a baseball game if if a guy hit it this hard. It was uh, apparently yeah. they clocked it at 105 miles an hour. Wow! So there, when you're when you're at Old Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, you know how when did you realize this puck was coming at you? Like after it rang ding! off the ring? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> when it you saw him wind up, and then you heard the ding, and then you said, "Wow." <laughs> You know, this this numerologist I talked about at the beginning of the show says the world is supposed to end on Saturday. It nearly ended about 25 <laughs> years ago. Because if that thing had not hit the pipe and hit me right in the throat, honestly, wow. I'm not, I mean, I'm sort of joking about it, but that would have been the end of me. Sure. Yeah. It would have been the end of me. And so it's, here's the trouble. And, and you, you make a great point with this is you don't want your view obscured if you're paying all that kind of money until you're the one who takes the line drive off the forehead. Exactly. And then you say, why was there no screen there? And then you launch a lawsuit and make millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome if to 2017. Yeah, yeah, if you're still alive. Or your family does it. You know, and this, to me, this wasn't even, this was terrifying. This was really a very, very frightening thing because there really was a sense that because it was a kid that was hit, that this was very, very serious. Uh, it right. sounds as though the kid is going to be okay. We think, although there's been no official report, that's just sort of what's coming out. But that one a year or two ago in Fenway, when the bat splintered and went flying yeah. through the air and and basically impaled a fan, uh, that was, now you're talking about something altogether even more horrible because, well, just because. Anyway, it is, uh, it, it, you know what? We will not be the only ones talking about this. This, I think, is going to be chatted about a lot over the next little while, especially, hopefully not, but especially if this kid has some any kind of permanent injuries this will be uh, this will be a thing yeah and if we don't one thing we know that commissioner rob manford of major league baseball isn't afraid to tinker with rules so i wouldn't be surprised if he would uh, show any reluctance to you know installing some kind of protective barrier i wouldn't be surprised at all maybe he'll be on the phone to randy ambrosi for the cfl to see how to make changes <laughs> mid-season be. rick zamprin you can hear him all day tomorrow here on 900 chml and every day and saturday night this week right Saturday morning, to be exact. Oh, yeah, it'll be Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, 2 a.m. 2 a.m. is when the fifth quarter starts. They're playing in B.C. this uh, this week. So, um, Rick, get your coffee. Yeah, you talk about morning coffee. It'll be morning coffee, all right. It will be. Tune in for Rick. It's always a great show. Rick, thanks for doing this. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. To the shock of probably nobody, because... You hope things go well, but when you have the same story over and over and over, you kind of get around to predicting the same thing. And what I'm talking about is EQAO scores. That is the provincial, province-wide elementary school testing. We're talking about the elementary school ones here. Joanna Frickitich from The Spectator wrote a piece in The Spectator today with the headline, Hamilton grade 6 students still failing math. Two-thirds of students in Hamilton's public schools in grade 6 are failing to meet provincial standards in math. Now, that is below the public average, but the province... So, basically, 50% of the people, according to these numbers, right across the province can't meet the provincial average for math in grade 6. They can't do basic math that they are expected to do in grade 6. If you can't see that this is a significant problem, you're missing something. And I'm not trying to be patronizing. I'm being very honest. This is a huge problem, and there's a variety of reasons why this is a big problem. The first and most obvious one is that these kids are going to go on and need some, many of them anyway, most of them, in some part of your life, you're going to need some kind of math skills. Most people. But the second part is we have a school system now for, well, for better or for worse, I was going to say, I I would say it's mostly for worse, but okay, that doesn't like to hold kids back if they are not doing well enough and they continue to get pushed through from grade to grade. We don't fail kids anymore. If a kid can't do the stuff that he or she is supposed to do in a certain grade for a certain level, we don't hold them back and require them to do the grade over because that would be killing to their self-esteem. We just say, hmm, go through. So there's been lots of discussion. In fact, we were talking about this yesterday or the day before. We have people who want to change the scoring system to make this better rather than changing 
why things are not going well. If someone, if you've got a bunch of kids that are not doing well, simply changing the way we grade them to bump up the scores doesn't resolve the problem. Everybody can see that. You need to fix the problem, which is make them better at math. We need to be able to make our kids better at math because we're spending billions of dollars in the school system to make this happen. So why is this? Well, Joanna Frickadich, who wrote this piece some time back, we talked about this, we talked to her back then, that we have, she did a long study into this that found some of the roots of the problem, some of the causes of the problem. But there's something else at play here, I believe. I really believe this. I am not a math expert. I am not a math expert. But there are some things that are going on here. And most of it, much of it in my mind, it seems, ties into the new math. And I'm trying to find the the proper name for it. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. Of course, I'm drawing a blank on on what this is actually called. It's ex- like experiential math. Ben, Ben, do you remember what the name of it is? Uh, was it the mastery? Well, one? no, the... it's, it's, there's a, there's an actual name. Instead of now just knowing four times four is 16 and learning that and learning your times tables and having that beaten into your head, you should be able to work your way through and come to that through a explanation and understanding because some of the experts are now saying it's not enough to simply know the answer. That's not good enough. You can't just know the answer. You've got to understand how you got to the answer. Well, let me be silly for a second. Let me be silly for one second here because I know that this is a a gross exaggeration of what is going on. But when you see a spider web, do you look at it and you say, I wonder if the spider understands how that web was built? Or do you say, huh, that is amazing that that was able to be done. I don't know that the spider is going to be able to explain how that web was built. I'm just glad that he knows the answer to how to make that. Now, I understand we're not spiders. Okay, I understand we are not spiders. I understand this is different. We like to think through stuff like this. We like to come, discovery math, pardon me, is the name of what I'm talking about. Discovery math. We, we now, experts want kids, rather than just having the ability to know the answer, they want to be able to explain how they got to the answer. And at some points I say, okay, you know what, that makes sense for certain areas of math for certain parts of math. When you start getting into complicated things, yes, I would, I would think if I decided to go and take some sort of algebra or physics or something, I want to be able to understand why what is happening is what is happening. In fact, some experts get this. Some experts have actually said, and this is from the Edmonton journal last year, that memorizing, get a hold of this, memorizing the times tables is damaging your child's mind. If you force your kid to memorize their times tables, you are damaging their mind because you are restricting their creativity and their thought process that would allow them to figure these things out by themselves. Now, that means that if you're listening and you're one of those people who had to learn your times tables once upon a time, your brain is damaged. Just so you know, you are broken. You have not nearly reached your full capacity as a human being because someone forced you once upon a time to learn your times tables so you knew the right answer and you didn't have to figure it out for yourself. I could go through. This is a great story in the Edmonton Journal. But there are expert after expert after expert who believe in this type of math, in this in this. Um, experiential, let's figure it out here type of math, that this is the way to go. Now, the problem I have is it's about 20, 25 years, maybe not even that long, probably that we've brought this into play, which seems to correlate roughly with when math scores started to become a real problem. Now also EQAO came in. So there's a lot of different moving pieces here. But the biggest thing that strikes me about this whole issue 
And I'm going to get show you an example of what this math that we're talking about is, of this discovery math. But the biggest thing that strikes me about this is all the experts, I'm assuming all the experts who are talking about this are over 20 years old. I don't think there's too many experts, people called quote, quote, experts who are under 20. This means all the people who are now experts in how to do math learned their math under the old system and it was sufficient for them to succeed to the point where they could now be the experts teaching other kids about math and saying that the math I learned that got me to this point that made me smart enough to be able to be a math expert damaged me apparently and you need to have a different way that I didn't do. It doesn't make sense. Maybe it makes sense to some little degree if you want to implement a little bit of this stuff, but to come up with this whole idea that learning times tables, that actually memorizing the foundation so that if I say to you, Hey, I've got five, I've got five tables. I'm a restaurateur now. I've got five tables with four seats at each one. Hmm. How many people can I actually fit into my restaurant? I don't want my waiter or waitress to have to pull out a piece of paper and do some sort of creative thing to say, hmm, five tables, four people. How many is that going to be? Give me five minutes. I want the person to go five times four. It's 20. There you go. Boom. I don't see anything wrong with that. I see nothing wrong with that. But apparently that's not what we're really wanting. So I'm going to try and do this because some of you are saying, well, what is this discovery math? And I, and I'm going to give you one example. This is not a overview of everything that happens in discovery math, but it's one I found online and it gives some example, some example of what we're talking about here. And I'm hoping I'm going to be able to do this. The question that is being asked of a student is what is 32 minus 12? 32 minus 12. Now you're sitting at home right now or in your car or whatever. And if you are of an age that actually learned your multiplication, subtraction, division, addition, all that kind of stuff, you already know what the answer is to that. You know what 32 minus 12 is simply because you know what 32 minus 12 is. You can do it in your brain because you have the basics that were brought in there by pounding it into you and pounding it into you from your teachers or from your parents. I sat up at the cottage one year when I was a kid and my dad didn't let me go out and play every day until I had learned part of my times tables. This was not a pleasant experience for either of us. I'm, I can tell you, my dad did not love this. This was not any fun for him, but he knew it was important for me to know my times tables. And so this was part of our cottage experience that summer at a certain age. I don't know what age I was that I was going to be doing this. Amanda is on the line. I'm going to get to Amanda. Just one second, Amanda, don't go anywhere. But here is 32 minus 12 is presented to a student. How are you going to get to 32 minus 12? Well, the answer that this discovery math wants you to do, at least one of the ways, is you want to figure out how do I get to 32 from 12, or sorry, 32 minus 12. How do I get from 12 to 32? And then I can figure it out. Well, the first step I want to take is 12 is a tough number to work with. Fives are easier to work with. So if I want to get up to a five number, a root five number, 12, I got to add three. So it's 12 plus three equals 15. Well, now I got 15. Now I can start working with 15. Well, 15, I keep working by fives now, 15 plus five equals 20. So I've gone up by three. Now I've gone up by five. Now I'm at 20. Well, tens are even easier to work with. So now 20 plus 10 equals 30. So I've added three and then I've added a second five and then I've added a 10 and now I'm at 30. And if I add a two, I'm at 32. So what do I do with all this? Well, then I take all the numbers that I've added together, the three, the five, the 10 and the two, and they add up to 20. Therefore, 32 minus 12 equals 20. Hmm. Seems to me that is way more difficult, way more challenging, way more confusing than simply saying, hey, I'm going to learn how to put 32 over 12 and do simple subtraction and boom, I have my answer. Let me go to Amanda. Amanda, thanks for holding. Hi. Hi. What do you think about this new discovery? Have we gone too far with this? 
Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to agree with this new math, and I think it, it really is beneficial, and I'm, I'm going to kind of tell you a little story. So Go ahead. I did not learn, I did not learn this kind of math. Um, I, and I also started to volunteer uh, in a grade 7 classroom, so doing math with grade 7 students. Um, and when they first, when I first looked at some of the questions they were doing, I was kind of hit in the face, like, I have no idea how I'm going to help these kids because I don't even know what they're doing. Okay. So, it's, it's, I didn't understand a lick of it. So, they had to actually teach me what they were doing. Um, and the reason why, the reason why we don't understand, or we can't figure out this math, and it's really complicated, it looks so foreign uh, to people who have learned math, math in the past, goes back to the article that you were speaking to about um, restricting our brains, essentially. So I study psychology at uh, Brock in St. Catharines. So I pretty much have this drilled into my brain a lot. Um, you know, when you're young, your brain is actually equipped with way more neural connections than what you have as an adult. And the parts that you use more often are strengthened and things that you don't use will essentially die off. So at the age of 10, you have less neurons than when you started. So this new form of math is essentially said to to make you use different connections in your brain every time you do math so that when you are thinking about different aspects of your life in the future, it's a lot easier for you to, to work out those math equations as opposed to having to go back to that one specific fact, like almost like a box in storage, right? it's going to get pushed to the back. Whereas if you have learned math in a way that you associate it with, with a lot more different conceptual factors, yep. you'll actually bring that out more. The more you bring it out, the more you work with it, the more you solidify it into like long-term memory and you'll remember it forever. Okay, now Amanda... First of yeah. all, you sound like a very bright student, so I applaud you and I appreciate you calling in and I appreciate you explaining that. My son is also at Brock, so I know you're brilliant. Um, the problem that I have with the concept then, or at least the question I have with the concept of what you just said, and I, I, I hear what you say. If this all works so well, why have math scores dropped down so low among our students then? If this works so much better with the students, why are they showing such an inability to perform basic math problems when it comes to their tests? Well, I think that kind of speaks to the fact that teachers maybe need a little bit more of a push in the new educating system. So, like, the EQAO tests are designed, they were never designed to test student scores to compare student scores against each other, which is what it's being used for now. Um, but it's important to kind of recognize that that wasn't what it was initially designed to measure. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of times, like, staff and teachers, if they didn't learn in that same way, it's really hard to kind of conceptualize it. So maybe it's a point of there needs to be some work there. Maybe it's a point that the EQAO tests need to be scrapped altogether completely reformed so that they kind of go along with what the curriculum, because the tests themselves, and I strive for these tests, and it's, they are word problems, they're really complicated, like for me to understand and to put together some of these questions in the way that they're asked, um, but I find like, they're just so arbitrary, and they're not even really taught within the curriculum, like teachers have to take time out of the curriculum to teach stuff that's in the EQAO yes, so they yes. don't really go together. Yeah, Amanda, listen, I really appreciate your call today. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate your insights as well. It's it's, uh, it's really interesting. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Drive safe. Um, you know, Amanda has, I, I don't dispute Amanda's point that kids have neurons in their brains that we have to use so they don't lose them. We have to get them firing. That 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 all to me is absolutely right. But there becomes a gap, and she partially answered the question, and I applaud her doing it. But there is a gap then between we're trying to get these kids to do this math and use their brains in a way that allows them to use all that neuron and all that good stuff, all those cells and things in their brains, and yet the tests still show poorly. And so is it simply a question that the EQAO test is so flawed that nobody could possibly understand it. Maybe. Maybe that's it. But I see, I, where I want to really see a test then, 
And maybe, you know what, maybe one of these days we're going to do this. We're going to bring in a bunch of grade six students who will volunteer, bring them in here and give them math questions and see if they can actually do the math. Forget the EQAO stuff. Let's see if they can actually do the math that you would want them to and do it in a reasonable time frame. That example that I gave you of 32 minus 12. See, to me, and here's the difference we have. To me, if I tell you 32 minus 12, I kind of, well, not kind of, unless, and I'm not being silly, unless you've got a reason of a, a special need or something that would generally preclude you. And I mean, people do. People have issues. They they can't learn math or, you know, whatever. They could be dyslexic. I know that transfers to numbers as well at times. But for 95, 98% of the population, when I say 32 minus 12, to me, that should be boom. That should be an answer. That should be in your head. You should not have to work through a long process to get that. When I build a house, where I get fancy, where I get creative is once the foundation is already built. The foundation is a standard thing. The guys who come and do the framing for your house don't say, I think today I'm going to try something in a papier-mâché with balsa wood foundations and a little steel rebar. No, there is a way you build a foundation. And once the foundation is built, you can then add all the other stuff. Amanda's point I think there is merit to what she's saying to a certain degree. I still think we do a poor job from what I am seeing. We do a poor job of building that foundation. Once the kids have it, see, I disagree strenuously. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a math expert per se, but the person, and again, going back to this Edmonton journal article, the person who says memorizing the times tables is damaging to your child's mind. Come on, come on. Memorizing something damages your kid. Better not allow that person's child to ever perform in a play, ever play a musical instrument where they have to learn something to memorize it. Presumably, this person would then say, if my child plays in the orchestra, they shouldn't have to learn the notes. That's gauche. That's damaging their mind. They should just play what hits them. See if they can get to the final notes eventually. No, that's not how... There are things you memorize, and memorizing times tables does not damage a child's brain. Come on. And then, once they've actually memorized some of this... See, here's the thing. This new discovery math might not be the worst thing in the world. It might not be the worst thing in the world. It might actually be a really good idea once the foundation is in place. Get the kids back to memorizing the times tables and the addition and division and that kind of thing, and then start adding some of this. Hey, how are we doing this? Then maybe you start to get some bright kids who can actually figure out math. I'm sure we're going to talk about this again. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.